0: families this week who don't have a place to worship and there are a lot of churches throughout the midwest that have been destroyed i just sat for an hour last night looking at picture 660 pictures on the denver post that were posted in regards to the hurricanes, tornadoes that have taken place this week in the midwest and and i looked at some of those pictures there's one image of nothing left standing in a church but the front door and i thought what of all of these people we have such a wonderful gifted place this morning to worship And uh, families were destroyed uh, in Ohio this week, obviously, as uh, three families lost students in that shooting, and then so many lives have been turned upside down. I just didn't know what to do when I saw those pictures last night. It is overwhelming, and we've been spared, and I just want to thank God for that. Father, there are a lot of folks this morning who don't even know where to go. They don't know where to turn. Their whole life has been literally turned upside down, and I do ask in the name of Jesus and by the power of the cross, there are pastors and servants of yours all over this Uh, all over the Midwest that are sharing love and grace and giving water, uh, uh, cold water in the name of Jesus and a helping hand. And I trust that you'll reassure them and strengthen them. Father, please intervene in really powerful ways. You spared our lives, you spared our homes, our families, our churches, our buildings here and in this state, but so many other states have just faced enormous tragedy. These families in Ohio that have lost these three students to the shooting, other families whose lives have been turned upside down, many who died as a result of the storms this week, and we don't ever want to forget that when we are so blessed and we are wonderfully so surrounded by grace that there are others this morning who have just been devastated. And so we ask you in the name of Jesus to lift them up, draw people into their lives, into their homes, into their families, uh, into their areas that can show them the love of God in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of devastation. May you again uh, bring people into their path who will show them your love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. We return to our series in the Ten Commandments, and if you're really honest, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that we live in a culture that seems to be removed from any moral absolutes, any absolutes at all. Everyone seems to be able to decide for him or herself what's wrong, what's right, what's moral, what's immoral. And that thinking has invaded every level of society, and the results have left us floating on a sea of relativism where nothing seems to be solid and everything that we see keeps us drifting along in every aspect of culture at times we don't know always where to turn feels like we're living I I I looked at this section of scripture and I looked at where we are as a society and I feel like we're living in the days of judges if you read the first few chapters of the book of judges you will see that it concludes after all of the sin and all the tragedy and all the deprivation it concludes with this that everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes Everyone did their own thing, nothing to hold on to, nothing to turn to. Everyone seemed to do what was right in their own eyes. And because of that, we have allowed the courts to make decisions for our families. We've allowed judges to overrule the desire of the people. We've allowed school systems to tell us what and when we need to teach certain issues to our children, and we've allowed the media to tell us what to believe. We're trying to be so politically correct that it's almost insane that we have forgot completely about being biblically correct. I got a letter from Franklin Graham. Billy Graham has always been my favorite, as many evangelicals' favorites for years. And Franklin Graham, interestingly enough, had a letter come across my desk this week where he shares his frustrations with political correctness. He said, the maddening and prevailing sentiment in our society seems to be that we don't want to offend anyone, of course, except Christians. It's affected our schools, our government, our universities, and the marketplace, leaving us no room for moral absolutes or the authoritative truth of Scripture. Instead, political correctness demands tolerance for everything as it panders to a godless value of pluralism, marginalizing even men and women of faith. gives three examples in the letter. One is when the Alaskan Airlines had to pull off of the speeding tray that they shared with a meal with everybody, a verse or two from the psalm, because it offended someone. And because those verses from the Psalms offended someone, they pulled it away from everyone. General Boykin, if you've read his story in Never Surrender, is a phenomenal book, a believer in Christ. A general in the United States Army was pulled from an address at West Point this year because he had made an incorrect statement about the battle we're in with radical Islam. Franklin Graham himself was pulled from an invitation in 2010 to speak at the National Day of Prayer at the Pentagon because of stands he may have taken that certainly would have offended someone. He concludes this. Do you see the insidious nature of all of this? Inclusiveness now means excluding everyone who speaks out firmly for truth. It is happening everywhere in the country, wishing to offend no one, our nation's politicians, leaders, and decision makers stand now for absolutely nothing. 5,000 years ago, God gave us some very clear absolutes, very clear absolutes that carry the same weight, same power, and the same meaning as they do today. They are found in Exodus chapter 20. They're called the Ten Commandments. The first one I want to explore this morning in a different aspect of that you may not fully have grasped before. It's found in Exodus chapter 20. It begins in verse 2 where God says this, I am the Lord your God. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Not optional, not a suggestion, not an inference. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God says very clearly, no other gods before me do not worship or be devoted to anything else that gets higher priority than me. No idols, no substitutes. Webster Dictionary defines idolatry as that which has no substance but can be seen. Fascinating. Defines idolatry. I looked it up again this week. One of the definitions of idolatry in the Webster Dictionary is that which has no substance but can be seen. How does God describe what faith is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1? Faith is confident in what I hope for and the assurance of that, even though I may not see. False gods appeal to us because we can see them. We know what to expect from them. We can even control them because we've made them. Many have taken God and redefined Him to fit their image of what we want Him to be, and by that have therefore diminished God, and we call that idolatry. These created gods promise success, support our causes, and wink at our sin. Some have reduced God to nothing more than Santa Claus, who sees me when I'm sleeping, knows when I'm awake, knows when I've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Others have reduced him to a politician waiting to give me a ticket when I do something, or a policeman waiting to give me a ticket when I do something wrong. Some have seen God as an old man who wouldn't hurt anyone. Others see him as a force and some as a higher power. We live in a culture that says God is whatever we want him to be. In a book called The Trivialization of God, Donald McCullough says this, visit a church on Sunday morning, pretty much most churches will do, and you will likely find a congregation who is very comfortable relating to a God that fits very nicely into their precise doctrinal positions, who support their causes, and who conforms to their individual spiritual experiences. At many of those churches, you'd have a hard time finding the awe and mystery of what God is really like. The only sweating palms are the preacher who wonder if anyone understands the sermon. And the only shaky knees are the soloist who is about to sing. Others sit passively, seeming unaffected by the fact that God himself just may show up to see what we're doing. And Dillard asked this, does anyone really understand the power of the God that we worship sometimes so casually? The phrase that I want to examine this morning, though, is different than what maybe you would think when you look at this section of Scripture. The phrase that I want to examine this morning is why God tells us no other gods and the energy with which he says it. It's the last half of the last piece of the verse that I read this morning. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This morning I want to examine that aspect because it really does tell us why God doesn't want us to worship other gods and the energy with which he says it. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That is a fascinating dimension of God that we don't always explore. When we think of jealousy, we sometimes think of something we're not supposed to be. God's jealousy, though, is what drives the prohibition against idolatry, and idolatry diminishes our understanding of God. Put aside any thoughts of what you may have about jealousy this morning, and let's just see for the next few moments how it reveals something about the heart and character of God that maybe you know, but maybe you've not experienced yet. You see, by God's choice of that word and that phrase, I'm a jealous God, he reveals something about himself. He says, not only am I the one who created you, not only am I the one who loves you, who cares for you, not only am I the one who delivers you, not only am I the one who redeemed you, not only am I the one who can heal you, and not only am I the one who can provide for you, I want you to know that I am the one who loves you Passionate. Not only do I care for you, redeem you, provide for you, and heal you, I love you deeply and passionately. And I've been pursuing you since the beginning of time. Do have, any of you remember what it was like pursuing your mate? Best of you guys, we couldn't wait for her to say yes. We just wanted her to notice us. And we did everything. I'm telling. I'm doing a seminar tonight for premarital couples. If you don't have a guy that pursues you with every fiber of your being, drop him like a hot potato now. If you if you're getting now now if you're married, don't do that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. If you're dating, and you're wondering whether or not to get married and you don't have a guy who is pursuing you passionately and wonderfully, can't wait to be around you, lives to talk to you and share with you and share his love, if you don't have a guy like that, drop him now. Because he doesn't get better after the wedding ceremony. (laughs) I cannot tell you the girls that have said to me through the years of my 35 years of ministry, he changed it to honeymoon. No, he didn't. All of a sudden you saw what you ignored, what you didn't want to see, what you hoped wouldn't be there, what you thought maybe would change. But I'm telling you, as sure as I'm standing here, in almost 98.7% of the times, he didn't change at the honeymoon. God loves us like crazy and if you remember what it was like pursuing that mate who finally said yes to a date and then finally said yes at the engagement process and finally said yes at the wedding and you remember what your heart felt like and you remember what it was like to go after her with every fiber of your being and you couldn't wait for that relationship to be culminated and you knew you were going to spend the rest of your life with her. That's a little bit of a glimpse of what it's like for God to passionately pursue you from the beginning of time. God says not only have I created you But before the foundation of the world, I've been pursuing you. And in my relentless pursuit of you, I sent my only son to reveal how unbelievable my love is for you. That's why God reacts when we embrace another love. God, in a very real sense, is incapable of being dispassionate about you. God, in a very real sense, is incapable of being dispassionate about you. You may be able to go in church and sit passively, but God says you need to know I, the creator of the universe, am in love with you, and I'm incapable of being passive about you. Some of us may be uncomfortable with that dynamic of God's nature and character. Some are okay with God as love and that God loves the world. I like that. I understand that. I get it. I understand even the cross. But as long as it stays out there somewhere, it doesn't have to affect me personally, and I don't know if I want to get any deeper than that. But God's love is personal. God loves you. That's why he's jealous when you embrace another love. You see, we're okay with God as king. I'm the servant. I love the king. I obey the rules. I like that. But it goes so much deeper than that. The word of God, I I love scripture, but the word of God employs a wide variety of metaphors to capture the amazing facets of our relationship with God. One section of scripture said, I'm the potter, you're the clay. I like that. I understand that. That's a great way to understand my relationship with God. My response to that is submission. Make me and mold me. I'll be whatever you want me to be. You're the potter. I'm the clay. I'm okay with that. I submit to you. Another one says, he's the shepherd. I'm the sheep. I'll follow where he leads. I like that. I want to know where to go. I'll go wherever you want me to go. You tell me and I'll follow you. I like knowing I'm safe. I like knowing you're going to protect me. I like that analogy. And so you be the shepherd, I'll, I'll, everywhere you tell me to go, Lord, I'll go. He said, he is the master and I'm the servant. I like that. Uh, I bend my knee and I obey. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. All of those are great metaphors and all are biblical. God is much more than that. And many Christians never discover the deeper dimensions of God and thereby, in that, miss some incredible aspects his nature you see some like the master servant relationship at least we're in the house and I I like that I can be around him and I know he accepts me and I serve him and I love him but we're called to be more than that we're also called his children he's our Abba that's a wonderfully deep dimension of God's relationship with us one that by the way he wants all of us to get to it's very intimate very real very tender and very loving but not everyone wants to walk that dimension with God and those who've discovered that dimension of God won't ever settle for anything less than that. But it goes much deeper than that. The most amazing and deepest aspects and sometimes the scariest metaphor of our relationship with God is that I am the bride and he is the groom. I'm okay with some of those metaphors. I like the servant-master relationship. I, I like the Abba. I, I love being in the house. I love crawling up onto Daddy's lap, asking him what I need. I love talking to him. I love conversations with him. But he wants it to go continually deeper than that. And he gives us one of the most amazing metaphors in all of Scripture when he said, You are the bride, church, and I am the groom. John Eldridge, in his book, The Sacred Romance, says that the courtship that began with a honeymoon, the garden, is going to culminate with the wedding feast of the Lamb. And God says, I delight in you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so I rejoice in you. I know I've told you before that there are a number of aspects of doing weddings that I love. I love to be one of the first ones after all that everybody is ready and the bride is ready and, and, and going into each of the rooms. So I go in the in the groom's room and I watch how nervous they are and, and how excited he is and what he thinks and whether or not he'll be able to do all of his parts and he's only got one line, I do, but they get nervous about that one. And then I love walking around and going back and making sure the brides are ready and then I go in and I get to be one of the first ones to see them in that gown. And as a dad, it's one of the most amazing sights on the planet. But I'm telling you, even as a a non-dad with some gals that I've seen grow up for a lifetime after 17 years of being here, it is an amazing sight. But I know I've told you before that one of my favorite views is standing here on this platform, just down a little bit lower than this on these stairs, and then saying to everybody in the bride's party and everybody in the seat, make sure when those doors open up, instead of looking back to see the bride, you look at the groom's face watch the bride for 35 seconds because it takes a little while to walk down those 100 feet but you get one second to watch that groom's face when he first sees that bride and it's an amazing sight one of my favorite pictures is this i'm telling you when tj saw jen i thought he was going to explode couldn't wait to see her. and every time i see that picture of tj and I asked the family again, do you still have that? It's been a long time. They've got two kids now. And, and every time I think of that picture of TJ, I'm reminded that God is more delighted even than his face in us. And so few really understand that. Now maybe all of you do this morning and every one of you here understand that aspect of God and, and you see that face and you know that God is just as delighted in you more so than TJ is about Jen when you see that face this morning, but I've got to wonder if there's one or two in here this morning that just can't connect with that. You, you know what that's like. You remember that day when you were there and, and, and maybe you remember seeing on your son's face and, and a friend's face that look of that bride coming down the aisle and maybe you even remember back to your own, but you somehow can't make the connection or connect all the dots, that that's how God views us. And when when Jesus says in the communion passage, I can't wait to share this meal with you again, someday around the throne of God for all of time, he looks at us that way, and he loves us that much. Paul tells us that God has had this plan in mind since before the foundation of the world, and God has been relentlessly pursuing us, all in a desire to have you and I as his bride for all eternity. And when you fully understand and experience that dimension of God's relationship with us, it can and will take you to a deeper level than you've ever imagined. To a place that God wants all of us to go. A place of love and tenderness, intimacy and passion. God is crazy about you. If my wife were sitting in the pew this morning and she will be in the second service, or my daughter, and and I looked at them and and I said, I love you, you would get that. Some of you, I've seen this little gal grow up for 17 years, and so when I tell her I love her, she understands that, but there are some here in the audience this morning, if I were to walk into your face, and, and especially as a guy, got a little bit too much into your space and said, I want you to know I love you, you wouldn't know what to quite do with that, and it's me. You see me, you know I'm here, you know who I am, you've been around me for years, and I just want you to know all of that pales in comparison to God looking at you and saying, I love you like crazy. I love you so unbelievably much. And I want you to know that. I want you to know that more than a father and a daughter and a husband and a wife, I want you to know it more than a friend with a friend. I want you to know it more than than any analogy that I could ever share with you. I want you to know how much I really do love you I'd do anything for you. I hope you love me just that much. And I hope you now understand why when someone replaces me in that love latitude, in that top level, how it breaks my heart. And that's why he chooses, I believe, to use this word. Of all the words, of all the concepts that he could have used, there's no other way that he describes it, I think, better than when he says, I don't want any other loves to come between us. You may be passive about God, but he's not towards you. Because of that, you can understand how brokenhearted he was when Adam and Eve were seduced by God's worst enemy, Satan, and when we are as well. God could have given up on us, could have given up on them, but he never did. He gave us his very life. He gave us his son so that we could have love. And we could have life and have it forever. God's first command, no other gods, comes from a heart of love. It's not pointing a finger. It's not a a, a hierarchy kind of situation where he makes us feel inferior and we don't count. We don't matter. No other gods, you better understand that. It comes fully from a heart of love. That's why he says it. No other loves but me. Don't worship them which speaks of love or bow down which speaks of devotion. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And when you embrace another, I'm brokenhearted. I'm not mad, I'm not angry. I'm really brokenhearted. God doesn't want to be replaced. No wife ever wants to be replaced by a hobby. And no husband ever wants to be replaced by kids or by grandkids but I see it all the time and God doesn't want to be replaced either you see we're more than clay that complies and more than servants who obey we're more than children who belong and friends who agree God's desire is love and intimacy to be known and fully known and when you're ready for that and when you embrace that It'll change your life. It will literally change your life forever. There are many who don't know how to open up to that kind of love on a human level, let alone with God. Every time I do a survey in any group or any setting when I talk about how we view God, so many of us view God from our Father's standpoint or what we imagine our Father to be and how He looks at us and how He treats us and trying to live up to His expectations and all of those, and we did it again in another setting. And we had one person in 14 who said, I, I see God as somebody who loves me tenderly, passionately, and completely. Some of us don't even understand that on a human level, let alone with God, but that's what He desires more than anything else. And because of that, we can't hold Him at a distance. He wants more from us than a date on a weekend and a walk in a park, someone said. If God is pursuing me since the foundation of the world and loves me that much, then he may want more from me than to see me on Sunday morning. And for some of us, that may be scary. But anything less than that will keep us not only from being all that we are intended to be, but anything less than that will keep us from fully understanding and embracing all that God wants us to understand about who he is. But I'm telling you, when you get there, when you fully get there and understand completely and fully why he says, don't do that. Don't replace me with any other love. I'm jealous so much only because my heart breaks when somebody else takes the place that I want to be in. And any of you that have ever had that in your own life, you understand how brokenhearted you are when that happens to you. That's exactly how God feels when we do it to him. Which is why he says come to me. Run to me. I'll embrace you. I'll love you like no one on this planet can. Let me do that for you. No other gods, nobody else, and a higher level than me. I love you. Please don't do that. Breaks my heart when you do. Lord, this is just an amazing concept, one that you know I personally battle with every once in a while, and I admit that, that, Father, it's one that you want us to come to. I think of that prodigal son who disappointed everyone, his dad, his God, and then came running home to recognize that a lot of other things had replaced his love for you, and came running home. I've often wondered, Father, what it must have been like as he went down that long road home, wondering how he would be received. And I can't wait to get to heaven to talk to him and ask him what it was like to see that father's arms open wide and welcoming him home. For a lot of us in this room this morning, Father, I just ask in the name of Jesus during these quiet closing moments, for anyone here this morning who really hasn't fully embraced or understood this aspect or concept of your amazing love for us, trust that they'll run into your arms and they'll feel loved and embraced in really amazing ways. In the name of Jesus, we pray.